Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization, one of the many patient co hosts from around the world, and a patient living with these diseases myself, um, axial spondyloarthritis, or if you want to get real specific, the non-radiographic version. But I am not alone. I have somebody at the table with me today. I'm so pleased to welcome today Dr. Lisa Zicker. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to have a seat at the table and chat with you about the topic of today's podcast. Well, what is that, Lisa? Oh, it's something really exciting and something near and dear to the AI arthritis community, as well as my own interests, shared decision-making between patients and their providers. Absolutely. And, and Lisa, why don't you give everyone a little bit more information about you so they know where you're tuning in from and just a little bit about your experience? Absolutely. I am a rheumatologist at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. I actually split my time between caring for patients with autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases, as well as teaching in the medical school and in the fellowship training programs at the institution. And I have an academic research interest in education and how to best train doctors in progress so that they can best care for patients when they are out in practice. Currently, I'm working on some work with Tiffany on this very topic of shared decision-making, especially in the virtual care environment, which is especially relevant in today's (laughs) ongoing COVID environment with the most recent Omicron surge. Absolutely. And we're going to tie back to some past episodes because this is not the first time Lisa's been on her show. It's not. It's not. It, it was, huh? we are on, I, no, I don't, don't quote me on this. We're, we're right now on when you combine some of our, we used to do mini episodes with full episodes. So even though this episode might be labeled like 70 something, we're actually on a hundred and something. So it's like a show. Oh I know. It's incredible. I looked back and you were on episode 31. So really, yeah, it's a good prime number. It is. <laughs> I like that. So, so the way that the show works for, for those who are newly tuning in or who just want a little bit more information, if you weren't clear on, on this unique system that we do at our organization, our mission is to help other people like myself, like others that, that lead our organization, AI arthritis, who have these autoimmune autoinflammatory diseases with this inflammatory arthritis is a major component. We try to help 
all other patients from around the world to come to the table alongside all of the other stakeholders involved in the projects we're, we're solving and the problems that we're solving so that together we can listen to each other and really dive in and identify how we can solve these problems together. And in a way, we're all sides agree <laughs> that they will adopt the solution. That's kind of an important factor to it. So we have a little bit of a unique mission, but we incorporate that into the show. So the way that it works is we listen for the problem. And that's sort of step one. We have a six-step process at our organization. Step two is we put that problem on the table. If you think back in the talk show episodes 31 that we talked with Lisa, and even I looked past on 20, we also talked about shared decision-making and e-health on episode 24 and 30 leading up to that. That was us putting the topic on the table. Then we start to put the question and the opportunity for all of you to bring input in step three, step four, we sort of analyze where are we going. And then in step five, we put the topic back on the table because we've made progress and we're ready to tell you about that progress and circle back to get you more involved. So it's kind of this this rotating step. And then step six is all, always when we come out with the resources, but we're constantly spinning around back to step three to get your input. And so this is a step five episode. We're returning. We've got some great input and news for you all, how you can get more involved in shared decision-making. So to start, I just want to give a little background. So Lisa, how long have you been involved in educating about shared decision-making and e-health? Sure. So shared decision-making is part of teaching in general when working with medical students or, or residents or fellows. And so I've been involved in that for the past three, four years. And my, my research interests really emerged around two years ago, around the time of episode 31. <laughs> uh, very much in time with the onset of the COVID pandemic, and really recognizing how, how important shared decision-making is, especially in situations when there's really no right or wrong. And it can't be left up to the provider to like say, okay, this is what we're going to do because patient preference in, in all decisions has a, a role to play, especially when it's 50 shades of gray and many, many different options. And the, the best one isn't necessarily clear. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting how you how you put the time frame on there, because it was the first episode that we did when we through e-health. So kind of separating the e-health from the shared decision making was back in 2000. It was based on Deb. Shout out to Deb, one of our one of our patient co-hosts. So, hey, Deb, Deb and I, she's also a very dedicated volunteer at AI Arthritis. We love Deb. We love Deb. So Deb, we love Deb so so much that Deb was the person that I chose to travel with me to Amsterdam for ULAR in 2000, God, what, that was 2018? It had to have been because we didn't travel in 2020 and ULAR was in Madrid. So, oh my gosh, it had to wow. have been. So it's just so, like so, so long ago. I know it does. But we were in a session for eHealth. And shout out to Orly Nam, who is another person who's rheumatologist research and been on our show many times. Uh, we work with her at OMERACT, which is Outcome Measures of Rheumatology. And she was leading a panel on eHealth. And there was this whole debate 
it's not going to happen for at least a decade. It's too oh, far wow. out. And there were all these, these barriers to implementation and how yeah. unrealistic it was. And then fast forward, hit the fast forward button and it was thrust upon us. Catapulted, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> no choice. And, and no choice. I mean, I, I, I just think back of how we took all these notes on, you know, but they were focusing on the rural areas because that's where it could benefit the most. And and now we we look and everyone has had to adopt it. So it doesn't surprise me the timeline because you look at it wasn't predicted to really be mm-hmm. on the forefront for a decade. So we still had several years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, here it is. Here it is. So if we go back to shared decision making and and we we kind of tie this this timeline together, if you will, of 2018 in the rheumatology community in sessions, they're saying 10 years out. Now we have to, it's thrust upon us in 2020. Right. And yeah. we also have this this I, ideal situation of shared decision making. But if you look back or if you listen back to some of our early COVID episodes with Dr. Dr. Al Kim or Dr. Al or just Al, as I like to refer, because that's the progression. <laughs> he is my own rheumatologist and I felt weird calling him Al. <laughs> we love Al too. <laughs> but because he is also from Washington University and he's the one who introduced me to Lisa. But over time, he just insisted that I call him Al. It has got too many of these professional interactions. He, it, it didn't seem right to say. But anyway, so when we were doing these, these early COVID episodes with Al and we were re, almost reintroducing and emphasizing the importance of shared decision making, things were so chaotic. Is rheumatologist, I mean, you can speak to that, Lisa. It was, what do right. we do? We, you know, do we, how do we protect? Who's protected? There were so much, so many unknowns and patients were on, this is from my perspective, patients were sort of taking back that Dr. Google that they used to come into the office and say, I want to talk about this. What? A, and they, they were relying almost entirely now back on the doctor to give them advice. That was interesting. Different. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a different time. And, you know, from, from the provider perspective, we were really relying on and looking to guidance from recommendation bodies like the Centers for Disease Control and the American College of Rheumatology. And they were doing the best that they could because they were waiting for data in order to make recommendations. So in, in the meantime, we were you know using our best judgment and thinking about how autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases work, how the medicines we use to treat them work, and what that meant in the context of infectious diseases. It was a crazy time and we've come a long way. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And as we go back in, as where this was kind of all leading back up to, to a really cool project that Lisa and arthritis, myself specifically, are working on in this regards, the, the, the evolution of how it was always important to do shared decision-making, but all of a sudden, after we finally start getting the guidance and patients kind of almost jolted back to this, what, what does the doctor say? What does the doctor say? Rather than, than coming in with their own opinions, <laughs> it sort of just, ba- it went back a little bit, but what became dangerous is some, some of the patients were losing their voice because they just didn't know what voice to have. I have personally seen so much emphasis on shared decision-making, even if it was always in the guidance, 
for you or for the the fellows, Lisa, it was mm-hmm. not so well established as a go-to point in the patient community. Now it's everywhere. Now we just keep seeing, we, meaning patients, are seeing right. it everywhere. And that's why I find this particular episode so important because it's somewhat new for us, even if it's not new for the doctor. Well, I think part of that actually is that even though we we do our best to practice and share decision-making, there's data that show that doctors aren't as good as they think they are at it. And so I think that it's great that patients are advocating for themselves and advocating for that experience because probably need a little nudging and encouragement from the patient side to make sure that the physicians are actually practicing those steps in real life. Yeah, there is a lot of data that I know has been recently coming out about that. We'll have to, I'll have to look that up and share. Good for the listeners to know, those are those people who are living with the diseases and families and care partners, is that AI arthritis does have several projects that have already finalized, recently completed, and are starting in shared decision-making, including the one that we're going to men- mention here with Lisa. And you'll be able to find more information about all of these opportunities if you sign up to our our AI Arthritis Voices program, which is under aiarthritis.org backslash AI Arthritis Voices. And um, also, if you look under our initiatives tab, you'll be able to learn more about shared decision-making and what we're doing with that. And saying that we do have guidance, we are developing shared decision-making tools that you can use to start the conversation. And we're even starting to help patients, families, care providers to be equipped to build your confidence to start those conversations. So that's all under underway. So very invested in shared decision-making at our at phenomenal our work. <laughs> so phenomenal patient side come, coming in there. Um, so let's, let's start getting into a little bit about what, what we're working on, but to preface that Lisa, this isn't the first time you and I have been on a shared decision-making project together. No, actually, it's not. We had an awesome opportunity to participate in a working group of the American College of Rheumatology to draft telehealth competencies for the practice of rheumatology. So the AAMC, which is the Association of American Medical Colleges and who oversees much of medical education in the United States, they actually just released a series of competencies that define how and to what degree of skill providers should be able to participate in virtual care with their patients and their care partners. And this extends from medical student through resident and then practicing clinician. These AAMC telehealth competencies are are written for a general audience. And so our our fun role was to, with a group of other providers across the country, including fellows and Tiffany as the patient voice and representative, um, was to adapt those general competencies to the specific practice of virtual care in rheumatology. And part of that actually included shared decision-making and how to best communicate and engage with patients through virtual care. And that was, I was very honored. So thank you again to to Lisa for recommending (laughs) me to be on. Well, we kind of hit the jackpot. (laughs) 
Kyla, if you ask me. Oh, thanks. That was that was a very wonderful experience. Uh, I've been in several several similar working groups as part of Omer Act, where we've worked on revising you know, literature and, and things of that nature. So it definitely was in my wheelhouse. But for me as a person who kind of has these dual hats as, a, as an organizational leader, but then also as a person living with the diseases, to be able to be at that table and really with the rheumatologists and the fellows and the behind the scenes and hearing all of the back and forth, it's just a really unique experience. But it was it was also necessary because like you said, Lisa, we can, we can generalize e-health and shared decision-making, but it, it really does have specific points when it comes to rheumatology. Like we had talked about when you're doing mm-hmm. an e-health that, well, how am I supposed to show my swollen back? <laughs> For right. example, exactly. that was, that was my yeah. example with spondyloarthritis. I was, I was in so much pain. I'm sitting here trying to back up into the camera. <laughs> <laughs> there should be like, like, funny like and you have the best setup you've already got the recording scenario (laughs) it could actually be pretty funny putting all of them together trying trying to um, figure this out but anyway so it was very very much an honor and to be on that and then afterwards another opportunity came up so lisa why don't you tell everyone about the project we have been referencing since the very beginning here Let's let the cat out of the bag. Let's do it. We let's do it. (laughs) I love it. So Uh, Tiffany and I, along with Catherine McCarthy, who is a primary care physician at the St. Louis Veterans Affairs Hospital and Emma Nolan Thomas, who is an, a medical anthropology PhD candidate from the University of Michigan. The four of us together are working on a qualitative study where we're trying to identify the best practices for shared decision-making specifically during virtual care appointments. So like video appointments or through telephone encounters. The first phase is a series of focus groups that we're running with patients and providers actually together. Kind of stole that a little bit from Tiffany's AI arthritis model, (laughs) bringing both stakeholders together to discuss some of the issues and make sure that both sides are um, contributing to the brainstorming of how do we craft and how do we identify and what exactly are and how can we improve these best practices for shared decision making. So if you're interested, the information will be on the interest page that Tiffany mentioned earlier and the initiatives page. And so we welcome anyone who is would like to lend their voice to this process. Once we have all of the best practices identified, the anticipation is to turn that into curriculum and actually, from my end, train rheumatology fellows to do a better job at this so that that when they go out into practice, they're better physicians for you. And I think it's going to be a really exciting initiative. And I'm excited to see what we learn. You know, like, are there differences between how shared decision making should happen during virtual care as opposed to when everybody's in person in the clinic? Or is it really all the same? And we just need to do a better job of actually engaging in the practice. It'll, It'll be interesting to see what these results show. Absolutely. What I really appreciate too, Lisa, is that you have embraced what I was explaining to you about the sort of pilot test that AI arthritis did back starting in 2015 when we hypothesized that if a person living with diseases could be professionally trained as a focus group moderator, then 
they could, in fact, lead focus groups as well, eliminating bias because they could Mm -hmm. put on their professional hat, right? And then the theory was having the background knowledge of being a person living with diseases that lived experience, the deep dive could go further. And that's what we pilot tested in 2015. I had to go and take many college courses because you can't get a degree in focus group. (laughs) <laughs> but I took all went to took all the the research went under the research umbrella courses that yeah. were related right and and took all of those and then started conducting them for AI arthritis and then it was uh, thanks again I know I've mentioned it before but shout out to Omarag because they're the ones who gave me the first opportunity to test it in a real life situation in our working group and it was so well received that at the end of the week this was in 2018 the end of the week when they had a list of all of the best takeaways of Omeract 2018, it was listed as number two. As, That's incredible. Uh, and I, you, I almost thought I almost passed out as I was sitting in the audience <laughs> of like 200 people. By I, I wish they would have had like a, like somebody that had a picture. I never thought that just that I was. I have a picture of it. I have to find it and share it on the the episode page. But because I was like, oh my gosh, I got to take a picture. I'm number two, number two. But they were encouraging other working groups to take on this model because they want patient research partners to get more involved. So anyway, when I met, as soon as I mentioned it to Lisa, she didn't even blink an eye. She said, let's incorporate that. So let's do it. So um, I am proud to say that I'll also say I'm one of those, those co-leaders with Lisa leading the focus group. So, I mean, just so appreciative of you and Wash U, just, just it, from my experience with everyone I've met at Wash U, being so open to involving the patient at, at the table. I, I just wanted to give a special shout out to that. Well, I think, I think that partnership is so important and it's that partnership that makes, I think a lot of us want to go into medicine It makes those of us who are rheumatologists want to be rheumatologists because we like working with our patients over a prolonged period of time. And so we carry that over into kind of everything else we do, valuing that partnership. We could, we couldn't, it take, really does take, it takes both well, to, it takes two to tango to, yeah. to use this expression, <laughs> but I do want to say, you know, like, so you mentioned the benefits of patients leading focus groups as professionals and eliminating bias and taking a deeper dive into the analysis. But I, I hope also, and I think I would imagine also, if a patient is leading the group, it also encourages input from patient participants in a way that's, because it's not as scary as like, oh gosh, the doctor is here. I have to be on my best behavior. Instead, you're talking to someone who totally understands what you're saying and can completely relate. I imagine, and I'm hoping that that also encourages real feedback from, from patients who live with autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases. Thanks for bringing that up because when we did, again, this was a, a pilot when we first did it and you got kind of got the timestamp. We started in 2015 and I said, I presented an OMRAC in 2018. So research does take yeah. time, right? A long time. <laughs> so, so I want you to, you know, I want everyone to, this was not a, a blink of an eye process, but in saying that when we did the report on the follow-up afterwards, we did ask those who had participated in focus groups before, because obviously if you don't have any experience, you have nothing to compare it to. But those who had been in them prior, we did ask if they felt any different in their response or their comfort level, if you will, with having a person known to have the same lived experience or the same, I shouldn't say that, same disease who can understand your lived experience 
you know, in conjunction or in, you know, looking at uh, somebody who maybe you've participated in focus groups who did not, or you didn't know. I mean, you may not, they right. didn't, they didn't. Sometimes and, it's, well, it's hidden. I mean, across the board, there was no, there was no question that they all felt like they were able to share more because they, they there was this underlying understanding that the right. person who was leading got them. Like, I, they, I know whatever I'm going to say, they're not going to, they're not going to question me. They're not going to say, you know, like, oh, are you sure? Like, because we 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 carry that with us as patients. We aren't believed by family, by friends, unfortunately, by doctors a lot. So all of that baggage, <laughs> right. well, does come into research. And so we did test that as well, and overwhelmingly, the people who had participated before. So yeah, I'm glad that that you brought that up. But also, as Lisa mentioned, these focus groups are underway, and we do have a lot of people that, that are signing up for them, but we have lots of ways that you can, you can have a voice in this project, whether it is directly in the project or conversations with AR arthritis about the topic, because as I said, our organization's already taking on many, many projects in this space with shared decision-making, so there's still opportunity to continue conversations about this in relation to this project. So we also have a sign-up sheet specifically for, for research under aiarthritis.org backslash research. You'll be able to get more involved in many of our opportunities that, that we have. So anything else you wanted to share on that particular project, Lisa? I don't think so. You, you've covered it. We we welcome all, all types of patients from all over. And if you're interested, give us a shout out through, there's a survey link that you can take and let us know that you're interested in participating. And if you want that survey link, we will have that prominently featured with signing up for research on, again, our aiarthritis.org backslash research specific page. Also, I'm glad you mentioned that it is international. Yes. It is. You said all over. Everyone has to speak English. The, yes. The, well, one minor, one minor thing, but because the focus groups will be conducted in English. But yes, definitely international. Welcome, yes. welcome your input. Yes. So I wanted to make sure we said that because I know when I originally posted it on my personal social media page, a lot of patients from Canada and Australia were saying, "Well, can I?" Because they're used to posts, especially when they see ACR or anything, Rheumatology Research Foundation, which is, you know, affiliated, they, they automatically think it's only United States. So um, it, it is international. One thing I wanted to quickly just break out to a little bit because it is time sensitive. And one of our key breakout series of this talk show is called Roomy Rounds. And I got to give another shout out to Al. <laughs> my rheumatologist because of him, I pitched this idea to him and he said, yes, this is amazing. And he's the one who helped me put the pilot episodes out and really start to endorse this whole series. And essentially it is specifically focused on patients and rheumatology professionals talking about key issues that are important to the population, but may not be that conversation that you're having directly in the office. So it's really just a conversation to walk through some urgent issues that maybe through listening to our conversations can help you in your navigation. And in this case, we are talking about COVID and again. <laughs> vaccinations <laughs> again, as the saga continues. While I had this opportunity with Lisa, again, a, a rheumatologist, I wanted to just take this opportunity to 
put on the table a very timely topic in the community, not just among patients, but also among the members of the American College of Rheumatology, ACR. Our organization, just uh, AI Arthritis, just attended a town hall meeting that the ACR had last week. So let me timestamp this and say we are at the end of January 2022. Always have to timestamp when we're talking about COVID. <laughs> yes, we do, because it could change tomorrow. <laughs> we could have we could have new guidance come out yeah. in 24 hours. We don't know. In, th- in, in three days, at the beginning of February 2022. It, it, it ab- absolutely could be. But we wanted to take this opportunity because there's been, in our population, in those who are immunocompromised due to treatments, and I want to preface that because there's still some confusion among patients that they, by having our diseases, are immunocompromised. And it's actually the treatments. Can you just verify that? (laughs) Sure, yes. I verify verify that with a thumbs up. So many of the medicines that we use to treat autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases will affect how the immune system functions and is able to both respond to vaccines as well as respond to infections. Pretty much all of the medicines we use with a couple of exceptions, and that is hydroxychloroquine, sulfazalazine, and and I would lump colchicine in there as well. So if you're on any of those agents, you are not immunosuppressed. But if you're on one of those plus something else like methotrexate or an injectable biologic or something like that, you're immunosuppressed, meaning your immune system doesn't fight infection or respond to vaccines as uh, an immune system would if you were not on those medicines. Perfect. So I needed to have that clarified because that leads into this whole fourth dose for those 12 and above. And those have been put forth by by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, CDC. At the end, well, not the end. I want to say around September-ish of 2021, this this became knowledge knowledge to at least the patient community because we were all like, (laughs) woohoo, circulating it around social media. Then in December, uh, the... This just shows you how quickly it changes because originally it was six months after your third, they recommended having a fourth. And I want to also clarify a booster is the same thing as a shot. Yes. It's not a mini dose. It is <laughs> not. It is the, it is the same dose. It's just an additional jab in the arm. Exactly. There is a big confusion. There's massive confusion around those terms, thinking that you're getting something different than like a fourth and a booster. It's the same thing. Okay. In in this case, it is the same thing. Yes. Um, There are some other scenarios where it's not, but in this case, yes, it's the same. And that's why it's confusing. Correct. (laughs) Why? Because it has a different meaning in this context. And so there's a lot of confusion among that. But to even make one other point that lends to the confusion is even though this additional booster or additional dose is a full dose when you're talking about the Pfizer vaccine, when you're talking about the Moderna, you're only receiving half the dose of the original. And that has to do with some research that came out that showed the additional doses, uh, uh, people fared better with a lesser amount. So let's just add that to the confusion. But <laughs> bottom line is it is these are intended to be an additional dose. 
So what's happening is then in the research, some of it that Dr. L. Kim was Dr. L. Come to our rescue once Al. again. Oh, he's, he's his head. We should have so had big. him on the show. We've talked about him so much. I know. Do you know, <laughs> just as a side note, we were doing a, we, every time we go to our, our organization goes to ACR or ULAR, we do patient led debriefs. So we'll go to some sessions. We'll, we'll do debriefs. They're all on, on our YouTube channel. If, if you're interested in it, we've done them the last two years. But and one and I can't, I guess it was Ular this year. But we were talking about COVID. I had it planned, but the other co-host didn't know. Jeff's Dr. Jeff Spark. So Jeff and Al Zoom bombed. That's like they Zoom bombed our our debrief. <laughs> Because we were talking about shared decision making and rheumatologists and COVID. And then they had a time, like I was texting and saying, okay, time to get on. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of talking about rheumatologists and you're like, hello? What? <laughs> That's awesome. So I know they're awesome. But, but anyway, now I almost lost track of what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> We were talking about fourth doses and how right. Al did so, a lot of research, I think. In right. So, um, so anyway, this fourth dose has, has come up and the end of 2021, it changed to five months after. So it was always, Perfect. I knew in September from six months from me, who was in August, I was one of the first in line when I was able to get number three. And I was, so I was counting down. All right. In February, I'm going to be able to get number four. Then because of the research that Al and his, uh, in part, I mean, there's other research obviously that that's been done, but this was a big one, but we mm -hmm. can also link to that, to that research for, with this episode, but it was, it was showing that there's some issues with our vaccine response. If yes. we're on, if we're on certain treatments and while that wasn't, we don't know how the CDC came to all of this. The point is that there was a nut, there was a rationale for them to say, hey, if you're immunocompromised due to our medications or genetically there for, mm -hmm. for genetic reasons, for those in particular, it warrants having another dose. And so essentially, I'll also share the ACR town hall meeting that I attended just, I guess it was only a week ago. It seems like a month ago, but I think it was a week <laughs> ago. Um, and, and, and it was specifically talked about, do we, do we do a fourth dose? And I want to preface this by, they, they made a really great analogy. They, they said, think about it as somebody who's not immunocompromised due to these, these two, two reasons, their loading dose or their, their primary um, dose would be the, the two plus a booster plus, plus the third. Right. But for us, because what research is showing, our primary dose is really three plus right. a fourth. So it's not that we're getting an extra than everyone else as much as it's equivalent. Right. So you just require more vaccine to have this, a similar response. Exactly. And, and mount similar levels of protection against the COVID virus. Yes. I like how you described that. So, you know, I think a lot of these words of like dose and booster, as you were mentioning, are very confusing, but when it comes to COVID and patients who take medicines or have an underlying genetic reason to have a, a weakened immune system, it's, it is three doses. That's like the initial vaccine. And then the fourth one is booster. That's the icing on the cake. I, I think that's part of what, where some of the confusion with dose booster is coming from because 
to the general public, it's two doses and a booster. But for patients on immunosuppression or with weakened immune systems for this, that, or the other, it's three doses plus the fourth, which is the booster. And I can't take credit for for being eloquent on that. I took it right from the ACR town hall meeting. So give credit where credit well, is you, due. You can take you can take credit for good note taking. Okay, thank. I'll okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll 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 take that. So because of that, the other part of it, and why I'm bringing it up now, is the whole shared decision making element. Because the mm. timing is so relevant to shared decision making with your rheumatologist. While the persons on the panel all agreed that at this moment in time, <laughs> I just can't say that enough. At this moment in time that it it makes sense to go ahead with your loading dose or your original dose of three plus four to equate whatever you, the, the response that, that most others are having. Mm-hmm. And I did talk to my rheumatologist at this, and also said, what do I do? Because now here there's a new Omicron vaccine on the horizon. Do I wait? Right. Do I, what do I do? And in yeah. my rheumatologist, again, in January 2022, I was exactly five months and I was one of the first people to get number three. So it made sense for me at this time to go ahead and get it because I don't know, we don't know exactly when the the Omicron will come out. But the thing you have to ask yourself, and he told me, and we learned at the ACR town hall as well, is what you really got to talk about with your doctor too, is when are you in line for number four? If you're Mm -hmm. not in line till May or June, this may be a whole different conversation, right? Because the Omicron vaccine may be out by then. That's right. And so, and the other part of the puzzle is that we also don't know what Omicron is going to be like in May or June. We know what it is now, but. Did you say there's already a variant? Oh yeah. There's another variant. Yeah. Yes. Of Omicron. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but, but like, No, I know. And there's another one that's like even more contagious than the current one. But we don't I mean, we don't know what that vaccine is going to be if be like with any any situation when it in the environment when it's actually released. So I think that just adds a little bit more uncertainty to the conversation, which then reinforces the importance of the shared decision making because there's a lot of different options and you know looking at timing the factors related to your disease and your medicines your personal interests individual factors all of that kind of comes together in in making this decision yes 100% which is why you know i just i wanted to take the opportunity sort of as a spin-off ep- mini episode of roomy rounds if you will right. to take the opportunity to capture an issue that we have identified as happening right now and the other reason why i wanted to mention this is because not everyone knows that there is another dose recommendation for immunocompromised persons in our case, if you were on these treatments, as as Lisa had mentioned. And the response to that is patients who are, uh, like I said, 12 and above are up for number four. And we have been bombarded, we meaning AI arthritis organization, with messages, with emails, with social media tags saying, I want to get my fourth today and were denied. This is happening as of I'm speaking today, I was even tagged. So as a response, 
and, and we can only do what we can do, but to try to at least provide some education, our organization, ha I have written a personal letter on our letterhead, just explaining to the pharmacies with, we made little short links. So it's easy to, for them to type in directly <laughs> to the CDC. We also have provided a sheet with guidance for you on how to prepare in case. So if you don't want to just bring this letter in the day of how to be proactive, because there is a possibility as of again, dating January, 2022 at the end here, that all over the world, people are getting denied this because the pharmacy isn't aware. So right. that resource is there, but it, it can, we're, we're just doing our best. What a wonderful resource to have. I actually, sometimes I do something similar with other vaccines with my patients because patients who are immunosuppressed, they get, you know, they get vaccines sometimes earlier than is otherwise recommended for the general population, um, you, know, for, you know, for pneumonia or shingles or in this case, COVID. And sometimes a little extra letter and guidance and nudge, nudge kind of greases the wheels uh, at the pharmacy. Yeah. So, so that, that, that is available on our website at AIarthritis.org backslash COVID-19. It's right at the top. <laughs> it says urgent. So um, you can, you can find it there. Thank you for sharing and helping this little breakout because this is such a timely issue and we want to get the information out immediately. But back to kind of closing out yeah. <laughs> the episode here. Wow. Um, that went fast. Well, because it's always fun to talk to you and it doesn't feel like we're, we're doing anything but we're just chatting hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But Lisa, I want to just thank you again for taking your time out here today to join us at the table. Always, always a pleasure. Always appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoy these episodes. Happy to come back anytime. And thank you for all the work that you do for persons living with autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis, great patient advocate, and especially all the work with teaching patients how to raise your concerns in, in the doctor's office and so that we can, we can share decisions together. Absolutely. Well, you know, the work, the work is, is still underway. It's important work, but glad to also have rheumatologists like yourself who are open to <laughs> helping us because we certainly can't do this alone with just, just the patient. We have to have all stakeholders at the table to really solve the problem. So again, if you want to learn more about any of the projects that we have been talking about here today, you can go to aiarthritis.org backslash initiatives. We also have specific sign up for any of the research we're doing at aiarthritis.org backslash research, where we actually do have this project highlighted at the top of the page if it, that we've talked about with Lisa and our organization has so many opportunities to get involved, whether it is with research, education, public policy. Oh my goodness. We have so many great projects going on this year in 2022. I encourage everyone, whether you are a patient or any other stakeholder. So if you're a family member, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a researcher, go to aiarthritis.org backslash aiarthritisvoices. We have finally launched this, this massive program where everybody can sign up for free. And then we message you notify you of any opportunity to come to the table. You may even end up on this talk show. Who knows? So, <laughs> <laughs> so that is that is up and running on full on full force. You can also find us on social media at IF, which stands for International Foundation, IF AI Arthritis on all of the platforms. 
And while you're on our website, if you want to hit that donation button, we aren't going to object because your support certainly helps us do the work that we're doing today, including things like this talk show. That is all that we have. Lisa, again, thank you. We are signing off. If you want to comment on the show, by all means, you can email us also at info at AIarthritis.org or find us on social media. So pull up a table, sign up for our projects. We're here. (laughs) I love it. All right. Because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events. 